I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In military history circles, we often hear about the second AIF and its exploits in the Mediterranean and North African theatres, and quite rightly so. Bardia and Mengazi were our first battles in the war. Tobruk was an epic siege. The Greek and Crete campaigns, although disasters, showed the fighting qualities of Australian troops and the Syrian campaign against the Vichy French ensured vital oil reserves didn't fall into Axis hands. But as important as all these battles were, the histories tend to gloss over one very important aspect of those campaigns. Australian infantry weren't the only Australians who took part in those battles. The Navy obviously played its part, but they could only go as far as the coastline. But what you don't often hear about is the contribution of the RAAF during that time. And so, in this episode, we're going to follow the war in the Mediterranean through the actions of one squadron, which was there at the start and had a hand in most of the major battles involving the Australians. Through following this squadron, I hope we'll get a better understanding of the involvement of all the RAAF during these years, 1940 to 1943. The squadron in question is actually still in existence today, based at Williamtown Air Base near Newcastle. It is the number three squadron, RAAF. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, welcome back. Well, this episode is a bit different to all that have come before. Why is that, you may ask? Well, go on, ask. Oh, I'm glad you asked. You see, this is our first ever sponsored episode. Weird, right? There are actually reputable historical types out there who are not ashamed to associate themselves with this podcast. So who is this reputable historical sponsor? It's History Guild. History Guild is a not-for-profit history education organisation based in Melbourne. Their About Us page on the website states their mission is historical literacy for all. To be able to make decisions about the future, it is imperative that we understand the past. We are passionate about history and want it to be more widely known and understood. And this is 100% my motivation for producing this podcast, which is why I am more than happy to give them a plug. If you go to their website, historyguild.org, you'll see they've got notice boards covering a wide range of historical topics, including different countries, World War I and II, women's history, political and social history, just to name a few. Under those notice boards, they publish articles, podcasts, blog posts and all sorts of wonderful resources. You're bound to find something to satisfy your particular historical obsession. This episode will become part of their Australians in the Mediterranean Theatre World War II section. There are already plenty of articles in there, which I could tell you about, but I'd rather you went and had a look for yourselves. If I manage to overcome my shocking record with technical things, I'll put a link to the History Guild website in the episode description. I'm led to believe that should do the trick. If not, historyguild.org will get you there. So a big thank you to History Guild for sponsoring this episode. Now it's time to get into it. Number 3 Squadron didn't just appear out of nowhere in the skies over the Mediterranean. Its roots go back to World War I. 
It was initially designated Number 69 Australian Squadron Royal Flying Corps. Just like the infantry, Australian pilots were considered part of the British Army at this stage of the war. It wasn't until March 1917 that it fought its first engagement in France, and by that time it was known as the Number 69 Squadron Australian Flying Corps. Then, on 18th of January 1918, it was officially named Number 3 Squadron Australian Flying Corps. During the interwar years, the squadron flew very little. I briefly covered the state of the RWF during these years in the episode on Les Clisby and the Battle of France, so I won't rehash it here. In 1939, we were at it once again, and Australian troops would be required to fight overseas. The army was going, and so was Number 3 Squadron, but only with 9 operational crews and 12 serviceable aircraft, they were going to need a bit of expansion. But by the 24th of July 1940, 21 officers and 271 airmen of all ranks shipped out of Fremantle on board the Orentes, becoming the first RAAF squadron to leave Australian shores. They arrived at Tufik in the Middle East in August of 1940. Much like the first AIF, these lads were working on the theory they'd be going to England to fight against Germany. And, just like the first AIF, those plans were short-lived as another country joined the fight on Germany's side. This time around, though, it was the Italians who had caused the change of fortunes. The squadron moved to Ismailia and then to Helmond, near Cairo, and were taken on strength by the Royal Air Force Middle East. The RAF equipped them with Gloucester Gladiator fighter aircraft. So this is World War II, yeah? You're no doubt picturing sleek, sexy, single-winged fighters similar to a Spitfire or maybe a Hurricane. Sorry to disappoint. The Gloucester Gladiator was another biplane which would not have looked out of place over the trenches of France 20 years earlier. It did have an enclosed cockpit, so I suppose that's something. Not that it mattered much at this stage, the Italians didn't have much better. They were flying Fiat CR-42 biplane, which looked just as antiquated. The two sides first met on 19th of November 1940, when the Gladiators were attacked by the Italians. Which is a bit strange really, because the first Gladiators were Italians. Or Romans anyway. Flight Lieutenant Pelly, Squadron Leader Heath and Flying Officers Rawlinson and Boyd were flying a recon flight when 18 CR-42s spotted them. Nine of the fighters made a beeline for Pelly, while the other nine took after the others. Their tactic seemed to be to isolate one aircraft and knock it out of the sky by sheer weight of numbers and then move on to the next. Pelly recalled nine distinct attacks made against him, but despite this the Australians soon gained the upper hand. Boyd claimed to see four Italians spinning out of control. Pelly reported one enemy destroyed, and Rawlinson also shot one down. Ground troops found three crashed aircraft. The bulk of the fighting took part on the Italian side of the line, so it's possible the others had crashed as well. For this outcome, the cost was squadron leader Heath. Shot down during the engagement, he was killed, becoming number three squadron's first combat fatality of the war. Now the sharper minds among you may have picked up on the significance of this little scrap. The Battle of Bardia, often credited as Australia's first fight in the war and in the Western Desert, didn't occur until January of 1941. This fight occurred in November 1940, which means that the honour of Australia's first Western Desert engagement actually goes to the RAAF, not the AIF. Now, as a one-eyed, biased old soldier, I'm willing to overlook this anomaly. But if you feel that historical accuracy is more important than inter-service pride, then feel free to bring this up at your next trivia night. Things went a bit quiet after that for a month or so. The British general, Wavell, 
was planning his offensive against the Italians and so the squadron mostly took part in exercises practicing dive bombing in support of advancing troops. Occasionally they would fly a mission to photograph the Italian positions and one gladiator was to maintain immediate readiness to move should the need arise with two others on five minutes notice. But that was about it. When the Italians first pushed across North Africa, they managed to force the British forces back to city Barani. The Poms waited for the Italians to continue their offensive, but when nothing materialised, Wavell reckoned it was a good time to hit back. Only trouble was he didn't have the transport to move his entire force. The best he could do was move two divisions. The Italians had at least six divisions. Also, they would have to move up to 70 miles to launch the attack, meaning the move would need to be done in stages over two nights. Movement during the day would just let the enemy know they were coming. So that would mean Wavell's entire attacking force would need to sit out in the middle of the desert for an entire day. This is where the air assets came into it. This move could only be made if the skies above the ground force were kept clear of Italian reconnaissance aircraft. If they were spotted and Italian forces were notified, then the attack would likely fail and the troops would end up subjected to air attack while at their most vulnerable. Number 3 Squadron took part in the operation. Despite a number of RAF squadrons being made available for the stunt, they were still numerically inferior to the Italian force. It had been noted that the Italians normally flew their patrols between 7am and 9am, and again at 1.30pm to 3pm, when their own ground troops were most active. So it was decided that two patrols of maximum strength would be flown at these times, rather than trying to maintain constant air cover with fewer aircraft in the air at any one time. Fortunately, the Italians didn't take to the air during the day, while Wavell's troops set out in the desert, and they continued their advance the next night. During the following fighting, Number 3 Squadron flew at least three maximum strength patrols each day, as well as other smaller patrols as required. The Italians proved to be little threat against the combined RAF squadrons, despite having the advantage of numbers. Their bombers didn't target RAF airfields, and their fighters were usually too far from the bombers to be of any assistance, making the bombers easy targets for the lurking Allied planes. The Australian boys held their own as part of the larger RAF force and Wavell's first big push was a success, leading the British forces to a point where they could attack Bardia. The Aussie flyboys were soon to be flying in support of Aussie troops for the first time in this war. Wavell's attack was initially intended to last for about five days, but the ease with which the Italians were put to flight encouraged his commander on the spot, General O'Connor, to push as far and as fast as he could. On 11th of November, Number 3 was ordered to bomb retreating enemy forces along the Safafi escarpment and to provide air cover to the advancing British troops. On the 12th, five gladiators intercepted a patrol of 17 CR-42s. Most of the Italians climbed quickly and then flew for home. Six or seven, though, decided to stand and fight. The gladiators managed to shoot down three without loss to themselves. But the Australians didn't have it all their own way. The following day, six gladiators discovered five Italian SM-79 bombers and went in for the attack. One bomber was confirmed destroyed, and a second possibly. But then, before they could regroup, the bomber escort fell on them. Two Italian fighters were shot down, but Flight Lieutenant Gaydon was shot down and killed. Flying officers Arthur and Winton were forced to bail out. Boyd and Gatward were forced to land, but they were able to repair Boyd's aircraft sufficiently to get back in the air with Gatward as a passenger. The fight had cost one pilot, four gladiators destroyed, and two damaged. Also, on that same day, another gladiator crashed on landing while being transferred to the squadron's base. They were now so low on serviceable aircraft that the following day, only one plane was able to undertake two flights throughout the day. Obviously, the squadron was no longer able to perform its role, and it wasn't until the 17th of December when the damaged aircraft were returned to service 
that the squadron was able to return to operations. They only flew a total of 39 sorties over the following week due to bad weather, which was handy as it gave them an opportunity to get more of the damaged planes back to serviceability before the assault on Bardia. In the lead-up to the attack, Number 3 Squadron took part in reconnaissance and photographic flights, usually as escort for the slower Lysander aircraft. Only one fight developed throughout this stage, with the Gladiators intercepting five Savoia 79 bombers and their six close-cover CR-42s. A further 18 CR-42s were flying top cover for the bombers. Two Gladiators headed for the bomber formation, while the rest headed for the top cover. The bombers flew off and at least two Italian fighters were shot down, with five others damaged. As the Battle of Bardi was fought over the 3rd to the 4th of January 1941, Number 3 Squadron was constantly in the air providing cover for the troops. However, the Italian Air Force offered no resistance. In fact, they didn't even show up. The closest they got was the two aircraft seen off in the distance, but too far away to bother trying to intercept. With Bardia captured, Wavell decided to maintain the momentum and head to Tobruk, the port city which would soon become infamous for the siege which would give birth to the rats of Tobruk. But at this point, it was just another Italian-held city that needed to be captured. In the intervening period, the squadron underwent some reorganisation. The events of the rapid advance had required the unit to be moved around in bits and pieces as operational requirements demanded, but after Bardia, they were too scattered to allow proper command. By the 11th of January, though, all aircraft, headquarters, workshops and sundries were congregated at Gambut, and number three was at full strength. As at Bardia, the squadron flew air cover but met no resistance from their Italian counterparts, which is hardly surprising. By this stage, the Italians had lost 154 aircraft and many of their airfields and supplies had been captured by the Allies. Tobruk soon fell and the Italian army pretty much collapsed, resulting in what was known as the Benghazi Handicap. Not that it was as easy as all that. The Italian Air Force could still deliver a blow every now and then. On 25th of January, eight gladiators were conducting a patrol at 2,000 feet when some more advanced G-50 fighters dived on them from 10,000 feet. Taken by surprise, four Australian aircraft were damaged and one was shot down, killing the pilot, flying off as a Campbell. Another momentous event occurred on the day Tobruk was taken. Number 3 Squadron finally entered the modern age and took delivery of its first Hawker Hurricanes. More would arrive over the following weeks, but for the most part, the Benghazi handicap was flown in the faithful but obsolete Gladiators. So far in North Africa, this whole war thing hadn't been too bad. Sure, the squadron had taken a few losses, but this is war and that's going to happen. But the losses have been light, the enemy didn't seem to want to put up too much resistance, and along with the rest of the British forces, they were going from victory to victory. Not a bad old war, all things considered. But then it all changed. Say what you will about the German army, but you can't question their willingness to prop up a failing ally. In World War I, it had been Austria-Hungary and Turkey, and this time around it was the Italians. Obviously, this German assistance wasn't totally altruistic. They had skin in the game. Keeping the Italians fighting in North Africa would oblige the British to keep a large force there to counter them. But obviously, something was needed to put a bit of mongrel back into the Italian army. A force that would inspire them to greater things. But who to send? Who else but General Erwin Rommel? Probably the best fighting commander in the German army. He'd played a pivotal role in the Wehrmacht's victory in France, and so he shouldn't have much trouble sorting out a comparatively small British force in Africa. Number 3 Squadron was assigned to the air defence of Benghazi from their aerodrome at Benina. But the situation was less than ideal. With the North Africa campaign seemingly just about done, most of the anti-aircraft defences were being shipped over to Greece to assist with that operation. Benghazi was also in range of the Luftwaffe flying from Sicily and Tripolitania. 
Early warning systems were inadequate, and as the Germans normally launched their attacks either pre-dawn or after dusk, the day fighters of number 3 were at a distinct disadvantage. They flew 99 sorties in the first fortnight, but only managed one victory when Flying Officer Saunders chased a JU-88 for several miles before finally bringing it down over the ocean. Luftwaffe raids soon pushed further towards Tobruk, while Rommel entered his Africa Corps through February and into March. The squadron patrolled constantly, but only a handful of actions took place. In each fight, the honours came out more or less even, with both sides taking losses. But with the poor anti-aircraft defences, the squadron had to fly back to rear airfields at night so as not to be bombed on the ground by the night-flying Luftwaffe. The Germans soon twigged to this, and so they did their work and then hustled back to their own airfields before the Australians could return to the Benghazi area. Then, in early April, Rommel unleashed his corps and all hell broke loose. The Allied ground forces were soon in retreat. During the retreat, it was not uncommon to hear the refrain, Where the hell is the Air Force? muttered from the mouths of troops being subjected to almost constant air attack. The Air Force was, in fact, in much the same position as the Army, falling back in all haste. Getting the planes out wasn't a difficult task. They could get in the air and fly. But the fuel, ammunition, workshops and administrative personnel could only be moved by vehicle, some of which were lost along the way with all the other Allied road traffic. Not that the squadron didn't put in an appearance. They flew covering patrols over the 9th Australian Division as they filed through the Bass Pass, and then in the afternoon they saw a flight of nine JU-87s harassing the 2nd Armoured Division. Flying their flash new hurricanes, the Australians went to the Armoured's assistance and shot down five of the Stookers for the loss of one Australian, Flying Officer Edwards. About an hour later, nine Hurricanes spotted another 12 JU-87s and fell upon them. Another nine Stookers were destroyed. Soon after, Number 3 was ordered back to Egypt to protect Salem. From there they flew a handful of sorties as far as Tobruk, but on the 20th of April they were ordered to hand over all aircraft to Number 274 Squadron RAF and proceed to Abukir for a spot of leave and rearming with Tomahawk aircraft. They were being moved on to bigger and better, or maybe not better, things. But during their operations in North Africa, the squadron had flown 1,262 sorties, claimed 47 definite and probably another 10 destroyed, and damaged 13, and had lost 12 of their own aircraft and 6 pilots. Although Australian infantry played a large part in the Greek campaign, Number 3 Squadron played no part at all, despite being originally formed as an Army Cooperation Squadron. Instead, they were kept in a defensive role around Benina in Libya. But while the Greek campaign was going from bad to worse, another area of concern arose. The French Army had been decisively defeated early in the war, and the French hero of World War I, Henri Patin, figured, if you can't beat him, join him. And so the Vichy French was born aligning themselves with the Axis forces and indulging in the xenophobic and anti-Semitic values of Hitler's regime, they joined the fight against the Allies. They began to make a bit of trouble in Syria. Just like today, Syria has quite a good supply of oil and access to the Suez Canal. If that oil and the canal fell into Axis hands, then the Allied war effort would have been dealt a massive blow. But what to do about it? British resources were already stretched to the limit. They were fighting the Battle of Britain, trying to halt Rommel's advance and making a valiant yet doomed attempt to hold Greece. As well as that, they also had to maintain garrisons at various strong points around the world, such as Singapore. The best they could do was to attack Syria with a comparatively small force. Bomber attacks were launched against Vichy positions at Rayak and Palyira, and strafing runs were conducted on airfields at Damascus. This kept the French occupied while the ground troops were gathered, including the Australian 7th Division. When all were in place, the invasion of Syria kicked off on the 8th of June. 
During the changeover to the Tomahawk aircraft, Number 3 Squadron has suffered a number of accidents which affected their ability to maintain an active strength and there was some doubt that they'd be ready in time to take part in the invasion. But they managed it and launched their first operation in Syria on the opening day of the invasion. Five Tomahawks attacked Rayak airfield early on the morning of the 8th. No French aircraft were in the air but six were destroyed on the ground. Later that day, another four Tomahawks escorted a group of Blenheim bombers on a raid against oil tanks in Beirut. The first couple of weeks were hectic for the squadron. From the 8th to the 21st, they flew 199 sorties, ranging from interception duties, naval patrols, tactical reconnaissance, strafing enemy ground troops and bomber escort. Despite initial success, the invasion eventually met stronger Vichy resistance and progress was halted around the 12th of June. French counterattacks were thrown against the Allies and number 3 flew 51 sorties against motor transport and tanks. On 14th of June, during a naval patrol, eight Tomahawks arrived just in time to see eight JU-88s with Italian markings preparing to attack Australian ships. Squadron leader Jeffrey led the attack and two bombers were soon heading earthwards. The Australian pilots began thinking that maybe these Tomahawks weren't too bad after all. French counterattacks increased on the 15th and the squadron's patrol discovered 12 tanks and 30 motor vehicles near Sheikh Mesquine. They returned later that evening and successfully attacked the vehicles with squadron leader Jeffrey and flying officer Turnbull each shooting down an enemy bomber as well. French counterattacks showed that the Allies were going to have to rethink their plan. They weren't properly organised for the type of fighting that was required and so a restructure of the available forces and a rethink of the plan of attack was underway. Number 3 was allocated to 1st Australian Corps, which freed them up from naval patrols and air defence duties above Palestine. This meant they could now concentrate their efforts in supporting the ground troops. 25 sorties were flown against tactical targets such as transport columns and airfields. French air resistance was fairly sparse to say the least and the squadron was able to conduct its duties unmolested. In one raid on the 29th of June, they destroyed a hangar, petrol and ammunition stores and many trucks and also shot down a Glen Martin bomber. Another restructure on the 4th of July moved number 3 squadron and a Blenheim bomber squadron to operate under the direct control of the 7th Division during its attack at Damour, commencing on 6th of July. The divisional headquarters was located at Sidon. Number 3 was at Rosh Pinna, 40 miles away, while the Blenheims were at Maquilba, 75 miles away. This obviously was not a good arrangement as far as coordination and communication between the three headquarters is concerned. The terrain also contributed to the difficulties faced by the air units. Suitable targets were hard to come by as the French had found excellent cover during the day and were also dispersed over a large area. There was no point dropping a load of bombs on a position holding only a couple of troops. Road targets were also few and far between. By this stage the French were falling back and they were doing so by falling back on their own supply dumps. So there was no need for vehicle convoys to bring the supplies to the troops. The squadron's main role during this period was escorting the bombers. Most flights occurred without incident but on the 10th of July, five enemy fighters took the bombers by surprise. Attacking from below, the fighters managed to shoot down three Blenheims before No. 3's Tomahawks could get involved. Eventually, all five attackers were shot down, but this was the first occasion in which the bombers under the squadron's protection were lost. It wasn't until the last day of the Syrian campaign that No. 3 squadron suffered its first loss of the campaign. Flying officer Fisher was shot down while taking part in an attack on airfields near Aleppo. Fortunately, he was able to crash land his aircraft without doing too much damage to himself. He took shelter in an Arab village and subsequently made his way back to the unit. Operations in Syria were suspended soon after midnight on the 11th to 12th of July. In the overall scheme of the war, Syria was a fairly minor sideshow. 
but from an Australian perspective, it had its significance. For the first time, Australian Air Force, Army and Navy units fought together with the operation directed by an Australian commander and staff. From the Air Force point of view, the campaign taught some valuable lessons in regards to close support for infantry. These lessons would serve them well in future operations. After Syria, the squadron was ordered to return to the Western Desert. Any of the more experienced pilots were given leave. Things get a bit complicated here for a bit, but I'll do my best to explain what was happening. At this stage, the RAAF was trying to expand to two squadrons in the Middle East, but some ruling from on high stated that men trained under the Empire Air Training Scheme could not serve with permanent Air Force personnel such as those in No. 3 Squadron. This meant that although there was no shortage of newly trained Australian airmen arriving, many of them couldn't be sent to No. 3, so the squadron struggled to maintain operational strength. Also, the new squadron wanted to send its pilots to fly with No. 3 to gain the benefits of their experience. But that couldn't happen either due to the same ridiculous ruling. For those who have never been in the military, this is probably the best example you'll ever get of military bureaucratic bovine excrement overriding common sense. This kept both squadrons from much operational flying until the later stages of 1941. At that stage, on most of the Mediterranean fronts, the Allies had settled into a defensive position. But Oshinlek, the commander of the Middle Eastern forces, wanted to launch an offensive in late 1941 to clear the Axis forces out of Cyrenaica and Tripolitana thereby securing the left flank of the Middle East. This became known as the Second Libyan Campaign. The entire Air Force structure had been modified as a result of lessons learned during the earlier campaigns, and No. 3 Squadron now found itself in No. 248 Fighter Wing, along with No. 2 Squadron South African Air Force, and No. 112 and No. 250 Squadrons of the RAF. Up to the end of October, despite being one of the most forward squadrons, Number 3 only flew 34 sorties as escorts for reconnaissance aircraft, 10 bomber escorts, 30 shipping escorts, 9 offensive patrols and 30 sweeps and at no point did they engage in combat. Leading up to the opening of the offensive on 12th of November, the squadron maintained air cover over the assembling 8th Army forces. Again, no contact was made with the enemy. The opening days of the offensive saw very little action in the air due to bad weather. But on the 22nd of November, the squadron was escorting Blenheim bombers near Bir el Gabi when they were attacked by 15 Messerschmitts. The Germans had the advantage of speed and climb, as well as a higher ceiling, but the Tomahawks were more manoeuvrable. In the ensuing fight, two Germans and three Australians were shot down. Later that same day, during a defensive patrol, No. 3 Squadron, with No. 112 in company, was set upon by 20 Messerschmitts. Without the need to protect the bombers, the Tomahawks had more freedom of movement than they were allowed in the morning's fight. Both sides manoeuvred around, trying to gain advantage, but neither was able to. Eventually, they each fell into flying defensive circles, with the Germans above the Allies. Occasionally, one pilot from either formation would see an opportunity to duck out of formation to take a crack at the enemy, but neither was able to break the other. So they ended up flying like that for the rest of the day. As daylight faded, the Germans were forced to break off as they had further to fly to get back to the airfields. These two incidents had a lasting effect on the remainder of the campaign. The Germans realised that although their planes were superior to those of the Allies, the advantage wasn't sufficient to risk the limited supply of aircraft by going toe-to-toe. For the remainder of the campaign, the Luftwaffe resorted to quick, sharp raids on ground forces before ducking back to the safety of their own territory. These raids caused significantly less damage than would otherwise have been inflicted by larger attacks. The Allies had essentially gained air superiority. But it wasn't without cost. Number 3 Squadron lost 9 aircraft and 6 pilots although four of the pilots were able to rejoin the squadron over the coming days. 
But on 24th of November, the offensive broke down and Rommel launched a devastating counter-attack. To support the retreating ground forces, the Allied air forces were called upon to provide cover. The only problem was that Rommel was using a large number of captured British tanks and trucks, and as the Germans and the British were all heading in the same direction, it was difficult to tell who the enemy was and who wasn't. All Allied aircraft were ordered to assemble at Magdalena, and number three were ordered to intercept six enemy planes which were approaching the airfield. After seeing the Germans off, they landed at the airfield and spent the night with 175 other planes. During his advance, Rommel passed within 10 miles of this airfield without realising that he could do some serious damage to Allied air power with a quick strike at all those parked planes. Such are the fortunes of war. On the 25th, the Luftwaffe launched a massive attack in support of Rommel with one group of bombers and fighter aircraft at 6,000 feet, another group at 1,300 feet, and a third one at 10,000 feet with a further fighter escort flying over the whole lot. It was a lot of planes. Number 3 took off to intercept, with number 112 again with them. Number 3 attacked the first wave of bombers, whose fighter escort shot through at the first opportunity. They counter for 10 bombers definitely destroyed, 3 probable and 8 damaged while only losing one of their own aircraft. Not long after this, Auchinleck decided he didn't like retreating and relaunched his own offensive. As you can imagine, when two opposing forces are both attacking at the same time, things get rather confusing. And as we're not covering the actual campaign in this episode, I won't try to explain it. Just be happy to know that number three conducted quite a few sorties, some to assist the attacking force, and some to hamper the German attack. On 30th of November, the squadron scored one of its most successful operations. While flying an offensive sweep, the number three and number 112 came across 15 bombers supported by 25 German and Italian fighters. While 112 maintained top cover, number three engaged and shot down eight enemy and damaged 12 others. Two Tomahawks were damaged, but were both able to return to base. Only one, flown by Sergeant Cameron, was forced to crash land, but Cameron was unhurt. Geoffrey landed beside him and stashed him into the crowded cockpit and brought him home. By now, the squadron had lost 16 planes and 10 pilots since the opening of operations, and so, until replacement aircraft and pilots could be obtained, the squadron was stood down. During this stand-down, they began to change from the Tomahawks to the Kitty Hawks. On 9th of December, Rommel's offensive had failed and his withdrawal had begun. Number 3 was back in action on the 27th of September, now at full strength and were tasked with most of the sweeping operations. It wasn't until 1st of January 1942 that they got to test out their new Kitty Hawks in combat. 16 JU-87 bombers and 6 ME-109 fighters were heading out to bomb British troops when they were intercepted by Number 3. The 109s attempted to fight off the Kitty Hawks and the bombers decided their best approach was to drop their bombs and go into a defensive circle. Despite this, two JU-87s were shot down and others damaged before they managed to break away. But their troubles weren't over. Sergeant Cameron noticed that most of his squadron peeled off to attack the bombers, so he tried to lead his section to attack the fighters. As he came out of the clouds, he saw that he was alone, and so he decided to break off. He then decided to fly towards Agadabia and intercept the Germans on their way home. He soon saw three 109s arrive. I'll let him tell the story from here. I let them get settled down and then dived on one, but had to alter my attack and had to dive on another one head on. I had a long burst at it and saw it flick upside down as it went under me. This was at a thousand feet. The other by this time had their wheels down, so I stalked the rear one and was only at about 500 feet. After only a short burst, he dropped his nose and crashed. I then attacked the other from astern, saw him wave as I fired, but immediately had to climb to avoid some stalkers that were now coming in. Icing conditions were severe in the cloud, my ring sight had been thickly crusted and the motor showing signs of ice in the carburetor. 
I attacked the line of five or six stookers just about to land and saw the rear one slide away as I shot at it and then went for the leader. He kept ahead on a straight glide into the desert while the main group turned left and landed. I flew in and out of the clouds for some time but as two of my guns were stopped and the reflector slides useless I thought it unwise to remain longer. End quote. Not a bad effort I reckon. More sorties were flown from late January to early February. During one of these sweeping flights, number three managed to shoot down 20 aircraft, probably another two, and damaged 10. By early February, the second Libyan campaign was closed down and number three was again stood down for a short period to allow vital servicing and repairs to their aircraft. After the second Syrian campaign, the Germans shifted their focus to seizing the island of Malta. Australian squadrons did take part in that campaign, but number three wasn't involved in any great way. So in North Africa, things settled down for a while. It wasn't until May that things kicked up again. In mid-May, Rommel decided to go on the offensive again in Cyrenaica. The German Air Force had increased its strength to about 70 aircraft more than it had at the opening of the second Libyan campaign. They had also taken on a number of the vastly improved ME-109Fs and used them in a more of a surprise attack kind of role. Number 3 Squadron didn't fare so well against these attacks. Between 13th and 19th of May 1942, the squadron lost 5 aircraft to the 109Fs. Rommel opened his offensive on the 19th of May, and number three even the score to some degree, claiming three German aircraft for the loss of one Kitty Hawk. During an engagement on the 26th of May, Wing Commander Gibbs managed to break through the fighter escort and attacked a Ju-88, but the bomber's tail gunner managed to put a couple of rounds into Gibbs's engine, setting it alight. With little option but to bail out, Gibbs abandoned his aircraft at about 4,000 feet, but on the way out, he was hit by the tail and the aerial wire became tangled in the parachute. Fortunately, the chute still deployed, mostly, but caused a heavy landing, with Gibbs breaking his ankle. On the same day, with slightly modified Kitty Hawks, the squadron launched a bombing raid onto Mini Airfield, managing to put three bombs in the centre of the airfield and another two on the edges. Not a bad effort for a first bombing run in planes which were designed for a completely different purpose. On the next day, they had another crack at this bombing thing. Dropping 22 250-pound bombs, they damaged several tanks and a gun limber while destroying a number of tanks and fuel supplies. Rommel's offensive ground to a halt on the 28th of May, due largely to the success of the air attacks by RAF and RAAF squadrons. They fell back through a gap cut in the minefield and dug in. Number 3 joined in on shuttle runs specifically aimed at conducting bombing and strafing runs on the ground troops and by the 31st of May the results were such that the converted fighter squadrons, such as Number 3, were ordered to return to their normal duties of providing fighter escorts. During this dangerous phase of low-level combat, the squadron only lost two pilots. There followed a few weeks of heavy fighting on the ground. The squadron was tasked with providing air support to the armoured units, but due to the nature of the tank warfare, the dust and the complicated rapid movement, opportunities to make a contribution were few and far between. But any hope that Rommel was done and dusted in the area were dashed on the 6th of June when he launched an armoured thrust towards Knightsbridge, and now outflanked the British strongpoint of Bihashim. The subsequent fighting obliged Oshinlek to order his 8th Army to pull back. During the withdrawal, all air assets, including Number 3, fought a desperate air battle to provide as much assistance to the ground forces as possible. The squadron only had 13 serviceable aircraft by the 16th of June, but managed to fly 62 sorties. Other pilots, on the one day, Barr flew 6 sorties, Spence 5, Sergeant Kildee 4, and 8 other pilots flew 3 missions. The ground crews must have been going flat out all day, keeping the planes fueled and armed and patched up. But it was to no avail. The combined German and Italian forces were too strong, and a natural dust storm blew up, making any further assistance impossible. 
The withdrawal continued and the Luftwaffe inflicted much damage on the Allied air forces. Of the 13 serviceable planes available to number 3 on the 16th of June, by the 18th two were lost, two were damaged and forced to crash land, and two others received lesser damage. One pilot was wounded. Eventually the 8th Army reached a reasonable defensive position at a place called El Alamein. Rommel thrust towards the position with his Africa Corps and the Italian Ariat Division. It was a tough fight, but the British held at El Alamein and El Ruisat. This was known as the First Battle of El Alamein. Attacks and counterattacks were made by both sides through it to August and September, but neither was able to gain any advantage. At that stage, Oshinlek was both the Commander-in-Chief Middle East Command and Commander of the 8th Army. Winston Churchill visited the area in August 1942 and decided it was time for a change. He appointed Sir Harold Alexander as Commander-in-Chief and appointed William Gott as Commander of the 8th Army. But when Gott was killed flying to Cairo, Command of the 8th Army was given to Bernard Montgomery. On taking up the appointment, Monty was said to have stated, Well, after an easy war, things have now got much more difficult. An aide attempted to console him, but Monty said, I wasn't talking about me, I was talking about Rommel. Whether it's true or not, turned out to be pretty accurate. While Monty undertook his preparations for what would become the Second Battle of El Alamein, Number 3 Squadron conducted routine patrols from Emeria. Although the Luftwaffe had numerical superiority, it lacked sufficient fuel supplies to keep all the aircraft in the air, and so only small numbers took to the air at any one time. The main incident, from Number 3's perspective, during this period occurred on the 15th of September. Flying with 10 Kitty Hawks of Number 450 Squadron, 8 Number 3 Squadron Kitty Hawks were directed to a point 10 miles south of El Alamein. Upon arrival, they spotted 8 ME-109s above them, with a further seven hiding within the sun, in a perfect position to attack. A general dogfight soon developed. More enemy fighters showed up, and both squadrons were in trouble. They kept up the fight, and 15 minutes later, fighters from numbers 112 and 250 squadron arrived to give the advantage to the Allies, and the Germans decided they'd done enough and shot through. As the Australians turned for home, they could see four Kitty Hawks burning on the ground and three parachutes in the air. One Kitty Hawk and one ME-109 were spinning out of control, having collided with each other. Claiming only one German fighter, the Australians had lost three pilots, with a fourth wounded. In the lead-up to El Alamein, number three again reverted to a fighter-bomber role. Although the raids were only fairly light and designed to keep the German planes from interrupting preparations for the big offensive, Montgomery launched Operation Lightfoot shortly before 10pm on the 23rd of October. As this was a nighttime operation, there was nothing for number three squadron to do except twiddle their thumbs and wait for daylight before they could get involved. In the final wash-up, there wasn't a great deal for them to do on the 24th, as most of the air support was in the form of bombing and escorts. Late in the afternoon, they were ordered to fly a protective patrol over the massed armour which had assembled and was waiting to play its part. All bunched together like that, they would have made a beautiful target for German bombers, but despite this, they remained unmolested. The following day saw heavy fighting on the ground with both air forces trying to provide whatever assistance they could. Number 3 primarily flew escorts for bombers, including a raid over a German airfield at Fucker. That's F-U-K-A. F-U-K-A, right? Three enemy fighters attempted to attack the bombers of Number 66 Squadron, United States Air Force. But Gibbs, recovered from his broken ankle, shot down one of the fighters, and the others were unable to break through the cordon. The battle settled in to a bit of a stalemate after a couple of days, but the Germans were only able to hold because Rommel had committed most of his reserves many of whom were thrown in against the Australian 9th Infantry Division in probably its most epic fighting of the war. This week in Rommel's forces elsewhere, and on 2nd of November, the 2nd New Zealand Division began its attack against the depleted line. 
Next day, scouting planes from No. 3 reported signs of a general enemy withdrawal. They directed bombers to the scene with the German transports suffering heavy damage. The British tanks were also let loose in pursuit and the Battle of El Alamein went from a hard-fought battle to a race across North Africa. In the skies, RAF and RAAF squadrons continued operations without any real interdiction by the German Air Force. By 19th November 1942, the 8th Army was back in Benghazi, the furthest point of advance of Australian troops in their opening actions of the war way back in early 1941. During the pursuit, No. 3 and its sister squadron, 450, flew 1,442 sorties, ranging from escort, bombing, interception, offensive patrols and convoy protection. The squadron then took part in operations to seize Tunisia, although when compared to their operations through 1941 and 1942, this period was pretty quiet. They conducted a few sorties but rarely engaged enemy aircraft, but occasionally the Luftwaffe could show it was still a force to be reckoned with. On 1st of January, five ME-109s surprised 12 Kitty Hawks of No. 3. Two Kitty Hawks were shot down, but their pilots managed to find their way back to base. Another plane was lost on 14th of January during a skirmish with a German fighter. During March of 1943, a push was made to outflank the Germans still fighting in Tunisia. No. 3 and No. 450 Squadron spent the remainder of the Battle of Tunisia supporting this thrust. New Zealand ground troops who were conducting this operation met heavy resistance and No. 3 was heavily involved in supporting these troops. On 21st of March, 12 Kitty Hawks destroyed seven German vehicles in the area and returned later in the day to attack German reinforcements as they moved forward. The next day they located about 40 German tanks, warned the Kiwis of their presence and then set about knocking out a few of those tanks. Three more attacks were made on the 23rd of March against ever-increasing anti-aircraft fire. One Kitty Hawk was lost, but the pilot was able to evade capture with the help from the locals. The low-level attacks took their toll on the serviceability of the aircraft, and Number 3's operations decreased accordingly until this deficiency could be made good. But by the 29th of March, they were at it again, and the two squadrons made 83 low-level attacks against German vehicles on that day. Soon after, the flanking movement was successfully completed and German forces in Tunisia were forced to retreat. They were harassed by Allied air forces, but No. 3 took no real part in that phase of the battle, once again making the most of the downtime to improve the serviceability of their aircraft. No. 3 Squadron's next and final operation in this theatre was in support of the invasion of Sicily. The preparation for the invasion of Sicily predominantly consisted of fighter bomber and heavy bomber attacks to first capture the island of Pantelleria as a base for fighter escort aircraft and then the focus switched to neutralising German airfields on Sardinia and Sicily itself. Number 3 wasn't involved in these attacks as they were mostly carried out at night. On 9th of July 1943, Number 3 Squadron left North Africa for the first time in over three years and settled into their new digs on Malta. In support of the invasion, it was imperative to restrict any reinforcements from moving to the invasion beaches. During the period to 17th of July, Number 3, again with Number 450 Squadron, flew 108 sorties against traffic behind the German lines. The squadron also attacked the gun emplacement, which was causing problems for the ground forces, as well as raids against railway yards at Calatini and Cantonanova. These sorties were flown in a fighter-bomber role and would proceed with a covering flight of Spitfires. Sometimes, though, the sparse German fighter efforts could slip through, and two Kitty Hawks were lost, although the pilots were assisted to return to the units by friendly Sicilian locals. With the invasion going fair to reasonably well, the squadron was moved from Malta to Pacino Airfield in Sicily on the 17th of July. Here they set up among the vineyards and olive groves, fruit and veggie gardens and wells with more water than they knew what to do with. It was a far cry from the parched, bland existence of the North African desert. Not that they had a lot of time to make the most of their new surrounds. Almost immediately after setting themselves up, they were into it. 
For four days they patrolled and attacked any target of opportunity they managed to locate. These did little to dampen the enthusiasm of the defenders, and the hard-fought ground battle continued around Catania. They proved a bit more useful on the 20th when they, and No. 112 Squadron, hit an enemy strongpoint between Catania Airfield and Mr. Bianco. This freed up the army below, who managed to take the position, signalling their thanks to the flyboys. But an hour later, the army once again called for assistance as the Germans counterattacked. The two squadrons again rendered valuable assistance, and soon, 30 Corps was able to push forward in a flanking movement which captured Leon Forte on the 21st of July. This left the Germans with only two viable transport routes, and over the next three days, the squadron hit anything moving west on those roads from Messina. Then on the 24th, they turned their attention to patrolling around Mount Etna, bombing and strafing ahead of the advancing ground forces. After another three days of these attacks, Number 3 and Number 260 Squadron hit an enemy strongpoint which was holding up the advance. It was cleverly camouflaged against air attack, but the artillery boys marked the target with smoke and the planes moved in. All but two of the 48 bombs dropped hit squarely on the target. Before the dusk had settled, the 1st Canadian Division rushed forward to seize the position. It was as close as you're ever going to get to a perfectly coordinated air and ground attack. With Western Sicily now under control, there was very little for Number 3 to do. To enable them to spend more time in the air looking for targets, they moved from Pacino to Agnoni. From here, the Australian squadrons flew 190 sorties, maintaining almost complete coverage during daylight hours. This restricted most German movement to night time. During the day, they hid their vehicles under the lush vegetation of the area, which made it very difficult for the Kitty Hawk pilots to spot. The only way they could find the hidden enemy was to fly low, but this brought them uncomfortably close to the German ground fire, and so it wasn't really worth the risk just for the chance to blow up a truck or three here and there. But the lads didn't get this far by playing it safe. They flew in low, spotted their targets, dropped their bombs, and then pulled up as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, during this phase, eight Australians were shot down, with all but three making it back to safety. One pilot had been forced to bail out over the sea on the 3rd of August, after conducting an attack on road traffic. Squadron leader Stevens heard about this, and immediately took off to drop a dinghy to the pilot. He returned later with an air-sea rescue amphibian. But when it hit the water, a sneaky German gun began to fire on it. Stevens thought, you nasty buggers, and turned in to attack the position and silence the gun. But in the process, he'd taken some damage himself and was forced to crash land. But both he and the downed pilot managed to rejoin the squadron that same day. The final stages of the campaign involved a German rearguard action holding the northeastern corner of the island, while the majority of German troops and equipment were ferried to the mainland of Italy. Number three flew sorties against those ships and claimed two small ships, eight barges and a large seaplane. On 9th of August, they attacked a landing barge, forcing it to beach without retrieving any of the enemy troops. During their five weeks of operation in Sicily, Number 3 and Number 450 between them claimed 300 vehicles destroyed, but whether this is accurate or not is hard to tell. Probably their main contribution was enforcing the German ground forces to restrict movement during daylight hours, seriously hampering their ability to move troops to meet the Allied invasion. So I reckon we might leave it at that. Hopefully that's given a pretty good insight into the experiences of Australian pilots as they fought across North Africa and in pushing the Germans back to Italy. Obviously, Number 3 Squadron's war didn't finish with the capture of Sicily. They would go on to continue providing support to Allied ground forces as they pushed the Germans back across Italy. But that's a story for another day. So thank you for tuning in, and don't forget to go check out the History Guild. If you stumbled across this episode from the History Guild website, I hope you enjoyed it, and I encourage you to check out our previous episodes, and also to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified when I release new episodes. And thanks for tuning in. 
hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.